Listening to So Much Pingle, the podcast about herpetology, field herping, and anything and everything about amphibians and reptiles. Join us each week as Mike and his guests explore the amazing world of herps across our planet. And now, bringing a half century of experience and perspective to the microphone, here's your host, Mike Pingleton. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the show. Mike Pingleton here, and I am your host for these proceedings. And here we are on the downslope of August with maybe some cooler weather on the horizon. And in the meantime, I hope you all remain safe and healthy. So welcome to the episode that is 14. Now, recently I sat down with Justin Eldon to talk about some of the cool herb conservation projects that he is involved with. Some of the projects are part of his work with the St. Louis Zoo, and others are unaffiliated, but no less impactful and equally interesting. And in part one, we cover his zoo-related work, and ever since talking with Justin, I have been thinking a lot about the St. Louis Zoo and the St. Louis Zoo's herpetarium in particular. And folks, if you've never visited, the St. Louis Zoo is absolutely worth your time. It's a great zoo. So Justin lives in the St. Louis area, and he graciously agreed to meet me close to halfway between our respective homes, which happens to be in the vicinity of Springfield, Illinois. So I picked a small park on the edge of Lake Springfield, and I'm starting to feel like I'm in the middle of a Simpsons episode here. But this park looked fairly quiet, but it was actually a bit noisy at times with boats on the lake and trucks in the road and yapping kids and honking geese. Uh, Or was it the other way around? Or maybe it was both. But at any rate, we got through all the noisy bits. And we enjoyed several fine products of the brewer's art while we chatted. And we talked quite a bit more than I expected. And so the result is the first two-part interview for the So Much Pingle podcast. And I am releasing both of the episodes today. Just for you. Just for being so special. And thanks for listening. And folks, be sure to see the show notes. There are links there to the St. Louis Zoo's Armenian Viper Project that Justin is involved with. And there's more cool information and some cool photos from Armenia. And you can also make a donation there to help with the project if you like. And there are more links to some of the other conservation projects that the zoo is involved with, like hellbenders and wild dogs and burying beetles. So let's get to my conversation with Justin Eldon. Hi, everyone. I'm talking with Justin Eldon today. Justin, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So I've, I've been wanting to get you on the show for a while uh, to talk about some of your work. And uh, I want to give our listeners some background on who you are and what you do. So uh, tell, us, tell us what you do for a living. Yeah, so my, my day job is uh, I work for the herpetology department at the St. Louis Zoo in St. Louis, Missouri. Currently, I live in Southwest Illinois, right across the border from St. Louis, but my nine to five is 
in the mainly in the Herpetarium at the St. Louis Zoo. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, and so did you grow up in the St. Louis area? I I grew up in Southwest Illinois, um, close enough to St. Louis that going to the zoo was kind of a day trip kind of a thing, but also close enough to Southern Illinois that, you know, where I grew up, it was, we identified with St. Louis, but we identified as much with like Carbondale and, you know, the Southern end of the state yeah. as well too. That's, that's where I, I still am in that general area now, just a little closer to the city. And how long have you worked at the zoo? I have been at the zoo in some form for crap. I feel old. Uh, going on 12 years now uh i started as soon as i turned 18 i began working as an intern i was a weird kid i knew exactly what i wanted to do and as soon as i turned 18 and was allowed to i started interning over there and working for free and kind of just fell into different positions after that i've been full-time there now in the herpetology department going on seven years i see I have to say that the the St. Louis Zoo and, and in particular the St. Louis Zoo's Herpetarium are a pretty special place for me. That's something that I grew up with as well. St. Louis has a great zoo. It's it's free. It's supported yeah. by this tax, not only on, by the city tax, but the county is, also pays in, and so it keeps the zoo and the art museums free and open and and pretty spectacular it's one of the right. one of the good things that uh the city of st louis is and the surrounding uh, areas have done st louis yeah. county it's a great thing that they did and um uh, provides for an excellent zoo right i've been going there since the early 70s <laughs> <laughs> <Very cool. laughs> yeah uh, i had a i had a teacher in uh in grade school and high school uh donald kweitzer who um was a herp dude Awesome. Uh, just a science guy and naturalist, and he took Mander's wing, and uh, he uh, he knew some of the guys that worked at St. Louis Zoo. So, awesome. couple he knew Ron Gellner, and oh, and, very uh, cool. Yeah. So, and, and he knew Charlie Hessel a little, yeah. little bit. So, uh, on, he took me up there on a couple of occasions, and I would get the behind the scenes tour awesome. of the Herpetarium. Yeah, yeah. And uh, got to see all kinds of crazy stuff that wasn't on display. Yeah. Got to see the two Ateras right. displays and come back the next year. And maybe one of the two Ateras had moved a little bit. You know, <laughs> they didn't move much. They do not. They're, they're little gargoyles for sure. Yeah. They they don't do a whole lot of moving. At night they move around more than uh than you would see during the day. And if you throw food at them, they 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 move. But they're they're excellent ambush predators for sure. <laughs> but other other than ambushing, they they're very. Uh, you know, they, they kind of sit in one spot, but I mean, they're amazing enough animals that they don't have to move. They can just sit there and you can, <laughs> you know, be in presence of a herp god to an extent. So Yeah. yeah. And you uh, you go down there and you take a look at the same animals I looked at in the early 70s. For, yeah, for it's sure. amazing. Yeah, 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 for sure. Especially one of the older females we have. Um, it's probably the same. That particular one is definitely one of the ones that you... <laughs> We'll look yeah. at, and uh, yeah, anytime you want to come back and look at her again. I'm sure quite a bit has changed since you've been down in the off-exhibit section, so anytime you want to come back, we'll we'll hook it up. Okay. Yeah, it's been a while since I've been down here. It's probably been 15 years since I've been Yeah, a lot's there. changed, for sure. Yeah. A lot's changed. There's way more hellbenders now, and more vipers and a variety of other things. A lot of rooms look a lot different from the last time you were down there, I'm sure. Well, to junior high me young high school me uh, that behind the scenes exhibit was fantastic there was so many cool things you know indigo yeah. snakes and right 
just amazing critters. I mean, of course, the display animals were, were fantastic. Yeah. Even back then, the display animals were fantastic. But to go behind the scenes and get get a, look, a peek at some things that weren't going to make it out on the floor were was extra special too. Yeah. So. yeah, and I mean, we, you know, first and foremost, we are a zoological institution. We have to be showing the public interesting animals, animals that they want to see, and also animals that we think are necessary for the public to see. Because, like, if you can get people to come in and look at a king cobra and get excited about that, it's easy to show them an endangered species of viper from the other end of the planet and get them excited about that and show them the plight that these animals face in the wild and, you know, at least let them be aware that there is a lot of diversity within the creepy crawlies, within the scaly guys, and a lot of them aren't doing so well. So, you know, having that educational exhibition component is incredibly important, but then behind the scenes, quote unquote, off exhibit, we have a lot going on in regard to research projects, uh, conservation oriented breeding projects. You know, we're all over the place. We have a lot of really amazing animals off exhibit as well as on exhibit. We have all, all the normal stuff that people want to see when they come to a zoo, right? King cobras, big rattlesnakes, that stuff. And then we have stuff that, you know, herpers and people that are very much into herpetology and herpetoculture get excited about or, or, you know, to an extent even don't know what it is because we have a lot of crazy off the wall stuff that you just typically do not see in collections. The last time I was there, uh, one of the things that comes to mind was the round island boa. We don't have those anymore, unfortunately. I don't think there's any of those left in the United States, unfortunately. But that was a project that a couple of zoos got in on in the early 2000s, I believe. And unfortunately, it just there's a lot of red tape and, you know, going back and forth with different governments and stuff. So not much occurred with it. But no, those those are awesome animals. I That's one of my, you know, top 10, you know, God tier herps that I would love to see in the wild someday you know yeah yeah they were pretty cool it was pretty cool to see one off exhibit there yeah yeah i used to work at the zoo too Um, no kidding (laughs) yeah and uh i i worked at the zoo in 1975 and 76 i think 77 and uh but i did not get to work in the what it was called the herpetarium oh big sad i did not get to work in there i worked on the railroad okay (laughs) and i was a conductor on the st louis zoo line railroad hey that's still really cool that's that's fantastic it was a a great job it was a great it was a great way to meet girls Uh, (laughs) it really was did you have to wear the uh the overalls no no but but all the all the guys that ran the trains were retired engineers and they wore the overalls (laughs) We had to wear like red shirts, and we could wear oh, okay. like we could wear shorts, and gotcha. We cool. all wore cool Jack Casual sunglasses, <laughs> and then we sit on the back of the train with a microphone, and and, and we go around the zoo. And we would say things like uh, "Good morning, everyone," or we would say uh, "Hello, everyone." Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome aboard the St. Louis Zoo Line Railroad. As we begin our 1.5-mile journey around the perimeter of the zoo, I'd like to remind you to keep your arms and legs inside the train at all times. And uh, It kind of sounds so, like well, you, you you have the whole thing memorized. <laughs> I, I Every day I'd go to the zoo and I'd say, good, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the zoo. And this went on for, right. you know. When, when you would come up behind the herpetarium. I'm I'm curious how much it's changed between now and then. Did you have a, a spiel you gave about the herpetarium back then? Well, we would talk about the things that were like we were we're now pulling into Big Cat Country Station. Yeah, yeah, and okay. Down you know, across the way is the is the aviary or the birdhouse, and then you know the herpetarium. So we would say what was there. So cool. yeah, so that's too cool. I had no idea. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, so and I yeah. You know, 
good weather. We we worked. Uh, it was seasonal. Yeah. Um, and I worked weekends uh, when I was in school, and I worked uh, five days a week during the summer. And uh, I'm sure you could go spend your lunch breaks in the herbitarium and <laughs> I do did, an I awe did. at I did. everything and, there. Uh, yeah. yeah, so I spent a lot of time at the herbitarium. Yeah, and, and just to, across the zoo in general, I also like you know the birdhouse and stuff. But so I, I'm just steeped in the herbitarium. It's, it was just coming up. It was just a place I I visited hundreds of times. Awesome. And even after, you know, I grew up and got married and, and had kids and I, I still would go to the herpetarium and especially uh, when, you know, work nights and I'd be off during the day in the dead of winter going to the herpetarium. When there's zero people there. There's nobody there. Yeah, that's the way to do it, man. <clears throat> yeah. That's that. Yeah. So. I mean, any time to go is, you know, great. You know, you're you're seeing really crazy animals from across the, the planet. You don't have to get on an air, airplane. I mean, seeing them in the wild is definitely means a little more but uh the fact that we're open to the public we're free and a lot of people you know the reason they're into herps or the reason they even know about herps and whatnot is because they have access to our institution and they can come to our facility any day of the year with the exception of new year's day and christmas and see these animals and i mean as as a kid i i lived kind of far away but once i turned 14 or 15 or whatever and had friends that could drive uh, we would try to get to St. Louis and, you know, we were poor kids from a rural area, but like the fact that, you know, for 12 bucks and gas, we could go to the zoo, hang out in the herpetarium and I could stare at all these animals. Like it, it definitely led to me wanting to do this stuff. It was definitely like, you know, I, I was 15 or 16 years old and I was like, Oh, I know it's probably close to impossible, but I, I want to work here. I want to do this. I want to work with these animals and I want to work at this institution. And the fact that all the dominoes kind of fell into place and here we are, it's, you know, I, I can't explain how, how amazing. And it's it's kind of been. rare for people to go, I'm going in this direction. Yeah. And then they end up <laughs> going in that direction yeah. and, and hit the arrow hits the mark, which right. doesn't always happen because life is so unpredictable. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. People, uh, and lots of people don't know what they want to do right. yeah. and, and maybe some people never figure that out yeah. and. But you have uh, you have achieved your goal. Yeah, and I mean, I again, I was a weird kid. I I have the same origin story as most herp guys, right? I was a kid. I liked dinosaurs, all that. Um, but I was super spoiled. My parents were the caretakers of a nature preserve in Freeburg, Illinois, which is a little farm town not too far from Belleville, which is a you know a bigger town that's not too far from St. Louis. So not only was I into this stuff, but like I had acres and acres of playground essentially to go out and catch water snakes and little snapping turtles and all that stuff and i i knew what i wanted to do i wanted to work with herps i wanted to work with them and you know not just in a situation where they are you know in a captive scenario but also i wanted to work with them in the wild and the st louis zoo is very involved in you know not only do we have that exhibition side of things and the you know the public education and outreach component but we do a lot of field work stuff too so i you know, it, it was a lot of work and I had to do a lot of grunt stuff. But I mean, like looking back now, I, I was an intern where I worked for free. And then while and, and the fact that I started as early as I did, I started as soon as I turned 18. I turned 18 and then a few days later I was wearing the khakis and, you know, busting my butt as an intern for the facility. And then I got a part time job while I was in college and being around like these professionals and, you know, people who could mentor me, such as Jeff Atling, who you know, and Mark Warner, being around these guys and having them kind of coach me through like, okay, like, 
this is how you get to this point. This is how you get to this point. It, it, it worked out great. Um, I worked part-time while I was going to college and I went to SWIC, which is the Southwestern Illinois college. And there's some great Herp guys there that, you know, continue to point me in the right direction. And then I transferred to SIU Carbondale while working part-time at the zoo. And then once I graduated, it was fairly easy for me to fall into my, to, to a full-time keeper position and then into the job I have now. So it's, yeah, it's, it's been great. And I, I'm so grateful that it's, it's worked out the way that it has. Cool. Uh, you, you mentioned Jeff Etling, who is, uh, was at the zoo for quite a while yeah. and, uh, worked in, in the herpetarium and yep. did other things at the zoo as well. And I, I kind of bring this up number one, cause Jeff's a great guy. He's, uh, he's a phenomenal guy. Yeah. He's, he's, he's good people. But I think he, he was also part of this transformation of zoos. Uh, zoos, when I was a kid staring through the glass, I mean, zoos were there to entertain, uh, but they really didn't have a conservation or research component. Yeah. And it was only, you know. It was it, a menagerie as opposed yeah, to. Yeah, right. Yeah. So it was like, you know, it was the, it was entertainment. So it, that has changed significantly and, and zoos become harbors for endangered species. They become conservation arms, research arms, and in this, right. they're much more involved in educational activities as as it pertains to conservation and things you know threaten threatened species and so on and so right. forth. Yeah, for sure. And of course the the lions, tigers and and bears <laughs> get they get all the attention. Right. right. They get yeah, all yeah, the yeah. attention. But the but the herps fall under that umbrella too. So yeah, there's absolutely. there's some conservation efforts going on with uh, with the herps as well. Yeah. So and I think Jeff was uh, part of that initial changeover, initial phase change into what zoos did. Yeah, he definitely, that whole era was when zoos really started going in that direction. There's quite a, a few projects that are, you know, started in the late 70s and early 80s and whatnot, and many of which are still around today. For example, the Unicolor uh, SSP, the Aruban Island Rattlesnake Species Survival Plan, that was one of the first HERP-centered conservation projects within zoos, and that program is still going on today. Um, is it? Yeah. And that's a really cool program that's been looking at not only, you know, maintaining the genetics of these animals within zoo collections, but also having a field research component to it, too. Now, that's um, an animal. Uh, one of my favorite animals to look at when I went to the zoo as a kid was the, the Aruba Island. Yeah. Rattlesnake, Crotalus unicolor. Right. And, or Dorisus uh, unicolor, depending on who you talk yeah. to. I, it'll always be a Crotalus unicolor to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As long as it's Crotalus. Yeah, I, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Ho Hosaria. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, speak not that name <laughs> on my show, please. Uh, <laughs> I just got in trouble, guys. You can see the look that Mike just gave me. Uh, but uh, I I had plans to go to Aruba this year, of course. Oh, did you? Awesome. Yeah, to try to, to see the, the the rattlesnake and, of course, denied. Yeah. <laughs> the whole thing is, you know, off, canceled. So maybe next year I'll get to go. So yeah, we'll um, yeah, hit me up off, off microphone and we'll... I'll, I'll, I'll give you a hookup for the area and we can, I'll, I'll give you some, yeah. Cause we, we were did, down there. Did you we, go? Yeah. We were down there last year. Um, we got four unicolor and three nights and then we, we got every species on the Island with the exception of the, uh, the peacock butt frog or the four eyed frog that lives there. And that was one that I was really excited to see, but they're, they're out during the rainy Oh, I don't know. Typically. That they're, 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 it's a really cool little frog They're You know, it's, it's another one of these weird, uh, migrants from mainland 
South America, like in Venezuela, they're fairly common and okay, you know, nearby countries. But uh, yeah, Aruba's amazing. It's it's such a weird little spot, and there's a lot that is being done on that island as far as maintaining their natural resources, both herp and otherwise, and being able to see unicolor in the wild. That was an absolute dream come true. Wow. So in the course of finding them, is are you taking data on them? Is there a, a, a tracking program or anything like that so, going so, on? With so them I'm not what's... involved in any of the, the field research components with unicolor. Um, that program is primarily through another institution, the Toledo Zoo, um, and the former curator there was the one that started that program uh, back in the 80s or 90s. But uh, that was purely recreational. I had hookups with some of the local biologists down there who kind of like, you know, pointed me in the right direction and whatnot and got permission where I needed it to and whatnot to, to see those animals. So we, we did report what we saw to the local park rangers and whatnot. But as far as like that, that was primarily a recreational, like I, you know, me and a group of friends that I trust very well, we went down there and saw I the see. snakes. Okay. And, yeah. Cool. In, in the future, I'd, I'd love to be able to do something to help out the guys down there that are doing that work. But as of now, it's, it was just a recreational type of thing. Yeah. Well, all of our plans are on hold. Right oh yeah, for sure. I, I had a, a, a book of plans for this year and then that big bug in the windshield that is COVID happened and here we are, but and here we are sitting in a park in Springfield, Illinois, day drinking, <laughs> overlooking a beautiful a lake. And, yeah. yeah. Z- zero complaints here. I'm me and my family are happy and healthy. I still have a job and I get to day cool. drink with the pingle that is behind <laughs> so much pingle. So no complaints. Awesome. Please drink responsibly. <laughs> please, please drink responsibly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so, um, so you've worked at the zoo for a while yep. and uh, you're married. You don't have any children. Your wife is uh, Maria, correct? Maria, yeah, Maria. And she is. What pro- does she do? So she works at the zoo too. She is. She works in the ornithology department or the bird department. Oh, um, so cool. Yeah. So she mostly. Uh, I don't want to talk too much about her stuff just because, like, I, I don't know if she got clearance. Uh, or, sure, but but she works primarily with some of the endangered species um, from Micronesia that we have. So the zoo Ooh. is heavily involved with field work as well as uh, you know zoo reproduction of critically endangered species, and in some cases, extinct in the wild species of bird. Um, Guam kingfishers being one of them, and she oh, works yes. with those and breed wow. those in the off exhibit. Wow. Uh, like kind of labs for those animals and she's half the reason I'm still alive at this point. She's kept me from doing a lot of stupid stuff. <laughs> so uh, every, every herp dude needs needs a, a woman, you know, that kind of brings him back. Hey, don't do that. That's really dumb. You're going to you're going to lose your leg if you do that. Hey, don't do that. That's really stupid, too. So, no, I she's she's amazing. Um, and going out with her is fa- fantastic because she's a birder. So she's always looking up and I'm always looking down in our, one of our wedding photos that we had, actually, there's, there's like a engagement photo we had taken where she's looking up in the sky with binoculars and like, I'm looking down with a snake hook flipping a rock <laughs> and it's super corny cause we're wearing like really nice clothes in it too, but it made for a really pretty photo. So. You, you realize that when, when biologists get married, they, they always do this they do this kind of stuff, whatever it is they're into. <laughs> they always have these things incorporated into their ceremony. Oh, for, oh, for sure. It's it's so cool. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't tell you how many people I know have sort of the same. So you you know, 
you're not you're not too strange. It's just that that's what we do. Exactly. Right? Oh, for so. sure. Yeah, we're a very special breed. Our our wedding was actually at the nature preserve where I grew up. Um, cause like since, you know, since growing up there, we began taking the dogs out to run there and stuff. And, uh, it's, it was a really cool ceremony. Another one of our wedding photos. Um, so my, my wedding photographer this is my good buddy, Chad, who's a herp guy too. And him and my, my buddy Saunders who helps run the, uh, Highlands and Islands conservatory organization with me they went out on a little paddle boat to take a wedding photo because there's a bridge that goes across a lake at one point and in a fallen down tree that like goes over this lake, there was a big sip sitting in the tree. <laughs> so there's, there's a wedding photo we have where her and I are kissing on this bridge and there's a sip like in the foreground. And it's, it's the perfect combination of wedding slash in situ field hurt photography. And I, I don't know if that exists <laughs> anywhere else, but but sh- sh- shout out to, to Chad and Saunders for paddling that boat out there for that photo. That was really <laughs> that's cool. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. And that's that's just how we roll, right? That's how we roll. Yeah. <laughs> that's 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 the game. Because it's part of sure. it's part of who we are and what we do. For so, sure. Right? Yeah, yeah. Cool. Yeah. And so I, I you know you did get clearance from the zoo to talk to me about zoo stuff. Yeah. So for that's sure. that's the good thing. And uh you know, it's just important for for uh, you to, and, and of course, our listening audience to understand. You know, that you have a position of responsibility there, and so yeah, they want to make sure that that uh, you talk. You know, we're talking about the the things we need to talk about in the, exactly, in the right yeah. context, and so exactly. on and so forth. So right, uh, and uh, you know, I just can't say enough about the zoo anyway. So. Uh, it's just yeah no i think i that's i had no idea you worked there that's super cool man <laughs> that's, oh, man. that's fantastic yeah we'll have to put you on one of those trains at some point and you can like go through the whole spiel i could probably okay. i could probably get through it <laughs> but i have to tell you though I, I you know there are days when i you know ennui sets in you just get so tired of saying the same oh i i could thing. imagine yeah so yeah, absolutely. you would if you couldn't remember how how far it was around the zoo, you would just say 12 miles. Or, uh, on our 12-mile journey around the zoo. Uh, By yeah. the end of the day, you probably did a little over 12 miles, let's yeah, be honest. Yeah. Yeah. So there was there was some, you know, there was some of that going on. But, it, boy, it was a fun job. Yeah, that's awesome. And, uh, Very cool. And, and the other thing, too, that I'll, I'll never forget this. This is going, you know, this is uh, over-talking here, but... The zoo used to have this big flat display case, if you can imagine. It was probably a foot deep. Um, it was a glass top and on four legs, like a pinball machine shape, mm-hmm. if you will, okay. without a back, another big backboard. And it was planted. And in this thing, they had two huge Taiwan beauty snakes. Oh, cool. Okay. And it's it sat over in one corner. It's a standalone exhibit. Yeah. It had a lock on it and everything. And these, they're six footers at mm-hmm. least. Uh, Taiwan beauty snakes, which are some of the most beautiful snakes in the oh, world. Oh yeah, they're 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 red. And they're really uh, cool. finally got to see one last year in Taiwan. I saw. So, not not uh, jealous at all. <laughs> yeah. So that was like a huge moment for me. Yeah. To connect back to that. But That's I would just go there and just sit there with my elbows on the class <laughs> and just watch these. Taiwan beauty snakes just sort of glide around this terrain, basically a vivarium. Yeah, yeah. And it was, it seemed so, um, now it seems so odd because, of course, these animals go up. They, you know, they're up and right. down. They're yeah. in, 
Uh, but at the time, uh, that's that's what they kept me. Right. Yeah. And uh, I mean, we're we're always, you know, <laughs> advancing how we keep these things and making sure they're living, sure, the best life possible. And every year, you know, we're we're learning new things and doing new things. And one one thing that we're very involved in in the herp department now is like research of not only these animals in the wild, but as well as like researching like how we keep them within zoo collections so that way we you know can make sure we're doing the best that they can but but anyway not to well yeah but that's that's kind of a nice segue too because you know the again back then the idea is to display a cool animal right for sure and with that without as much without much context but nowadays context is is everything yeah you know you can't do that kind of thing you have to you have to meet the needs of the animal. Um, we know a lot more about Taiwan beauty snakes. For sure. For sure. Now. Yeah, ba- back then they would show up on a price list and, you know, you kind of went off what the importer said about them and you set them up accordingly. And if, yeah. you know, they you got them in and they survived, then that was phenomenal. And if they bred, that was even even better. So, I mean, you know, we're, you know, we're, we've evolved past that to where not only are we keeping them and breeding them, but you know, we're, we're making sure that they are getting the absolute most out of their time within a facility as possible. Now I was there last year, last fall mm-hmm. I came by, um, I can I tell you what I did. I, I came by those, those the reptile house before I was the, killing time before your benefit for ales for scales, ales for scales yeah. benefit for the, uh, the, your project in Guatemala, which we'll get to. Cool. Uh, but uh, I had some time to kill, and so I wandered around the zoo, and uh, and of course, uh, I, I'm sort of a an architecture geek too. And of course, <laughs> the the architecture in the herpetarium, inside and out, is just fantastic. Oh, for sure, yeah, it's it's it's, it's amazing. It's, it's just, second uh, if you've never been here, folks, you really should try to go. Uh, the architecture is just just amazing, and so I just kind of sat around um, soaking all that up, all the all the stucco artwork freezes and the, the railings have turtles built into them and yeah. stuff it's just amazing but one of the the exhibits that really struck me was the mangshan viper yeah right and uh so tell me a little bit do you guys have a project going with the with the mangshan vipers so the uh as far as like a field project doing anything with china is historically been very difficult and even more so nowadays. So there's not much of a, within any institution in the United States, there's not much of a field component there with these guys in the wild. But within institutions in the United States, we are keeping track of the genetics of these guys to make sure that we have as diverse of a gene pool within our you know zoo populations as possible. Um, we have a good-sized group of them. At the zoo, they are... So the the whole genus Protobothrops is one of my favorite. Let's let's talk about for a minute. Let me interject. Yeah, no, go what, for it. What is the scientific name of the Mangshan viper? So we're it's, talking M A N G S H A N Mangshan. It's it's Protobothrops mangshanensis. 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 Yeah. yeah. And did that, I say did I say that right? The common name Mangshan. So, so uh, the Chinese pronounce it. Very similar to how you just said it, okay. <laughs> but even even compared to, you know, so it's not Mang Chang. Yeah, mo- so Americans, us Yanks, we kind of butcher all, you know, not only Latin names but a lot of these common names for animals too. So like what you commonly hear is Mang Shang or Mang Shin Viper or, or Mang Mountain Viper is kind of the even more colloquial term for them. But no, the way you're pronouncing it is more accurate. Okay, for sure. All right. 
So back to back to your story about the yeah. So we we have a, a decent sized group of them. Um, we Proto Bothrops is one of my favorite uh, genus of pit vipers, and these guys fall into that genus. Um, very cool. They're they're the commonly known as the lance headed pit vipers. We have a couple different species of Proto Bothrops, um, including Mucrosquamatus. Which you saw when you were yes. in Asia, yeah. I yes. would love to get over there and just see a wild one of those. They're they're really cool little. Where snakes. did I see those at? I saw those in Taiwan, Taiwan, and cool. Vietnam. Very cool. Yeah, no, <clears> in I, fact, I, at Taiwan, we uh, I was out with my friends uh, uh, Bill Murphy and, and Kevin Caldwell, and we found uh, we're in a city park, mm-hmm. and these. Uh, and I can't remember the common name of these things for the life of me on this on this on this podcast. But <laughs> these these little uh, pit vipers were using drain holes in, in like a like a you have like a, a concrete retaining wall, uh-huh. right? To, to hold back the the, the earth. It's right. a hilly, yeah, yeah, hilly yeah. park, and so there's a retaining wall, a concrete retaining wall with little drain holes in it, and the vipers would crawl in there and they would use those drain holes as as places to estivate <laughs> and places to uh, incubate eggs, and so oh, very cool! Yeah, I've got That's a couple fantastic. shots of uh, a head of a, of one of these protobothrops mucrosquamatas with a headshot with an egg next to it. That's too cool, and, man! Uh, yeah, very, That's the dream. Very That's cool. fantastic. So yeah, no, they're 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 but such cool snakes. Like they, yeah. mangs are. Um, like it's it, it, like there's so much diversity within that that genus and like the overall like theme of them is they're very smart. You look at them, they look at you right back. Mangs are kind of the exception to that. They're just kind of this big, bulky, beautiful snake. What they make up for in brains, they they, they make up for in just being absolutely beautiful and impressive size. I mean, they they get the another common name for them is the the Chinese Bushmaster because they just, they get so that's big. That's crazy and, because that's what I, when I first saw one at the zoo, I'm like, that's a Chinese Bushmaster. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a big green Bushmaster from China. Basically they're, yeah. uh, they're, a, they'll spend a little more time. They're not arboreal by any means, but they'll spend a little more time like in like smaller, uh, you know, plants and whatnot. And definitely in like climbing on rock ledges and whatnot, as opposed to Bushmasters, but like they're just they're big, they're yeah. bulky, they're beautiful, and their menta- their their attitude is very similar to a bushmaster too. They're they're awesome. During they're the day, cool. they're uh, kind of pussy cats. And- yeah, I mean, yeah, they're they're I mean, they're 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 pretty chill. Um, I mean, in general, like I uh, I, I I mean, I can only speak for captive ones. Obviously, uh, there's there's not too many, you know, non Chinese folks that have seen the wild ones, and you know, I'm sure. Some of us will figure it out at some point, but uh, they're 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 pretty laid back until they're not okay. <laughs> similar to similar yeah. to the and, and you guys have uh, two or three of them on display. We have a trio. Yeah, we've got a trio: two males and a female. Um, and then we've got some other ones that are off exhibit too. So, and the nice thing about you you're talking about the the architecture of the herbitarium. Um, all the when you walk in, you see all the beautiful uh, sculptures and like little you know the concrete work and stucco and whatnot that's all original to 1927 and there's there's so many cool little cobras and frogs that are hiding in every little nook and cranny of that place it's it's really really cool yeah along with having like the amazing architecture and the historical facility that we have we have a lot of rooms um 
off exhibit as, as well as some on exhibit that act as different biosecure rooms for animals that we are ultimately wanting to repatriate back out into the wild as well as like rooms for us to maintain these animals and reproduce these animals at the zoo so we have a room specifically for our western asian viper program um we have a variety of other cool rooms for you know montane and cloud forest species from central america and asia and it's 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 a hell of a facility it's amazing cool tell me what exactly what are you what are you doing there are you are you uh, performing keeper duties are you i have what, the what's coolest, your title i have the coolest job in the world <clears throat> so i work for the herpetology department which means i am working with our animals at the zoo um so i have a small section of exhibits that has cloud forest and uh temperate and montane species from asia and western asia too and some stuff from central america but I also do quite a bit of educational outreach stuff. So, you know, presenting to the public and, you know, doing webinars and stuff like that. Um, and then I also get to do quite a bit of field work and field research, too. So the Zoo's Conservation Branch is the Wild Care Institute. And all of our conservation programs kind of fall under this umbrella of this Wild Care Institute. And then within each department, we have different programs, right? So the herpetology department, we have three main uh, wild care centers. We have our Hellbender program, which is, you know, kind of a world-renowned yeah. program where we are working with the Missouri Department of Conservation and U.S. Fish and Wildlife. And we are breeding Ozark Hellbenders and the Missouri Eastern Hellbenders because um, Missouri is the only state that has both subspecies of hellbender and the eastern hellbenders that in missouri they're not doing very well just like hellbenders you know across the across the country really so we're working with those but the the emphasis of the program is the ozark hellbender which it, that subspecies is a federally listed endangered species and we are breeding these things at the zoo and releasing them back out into the wild uh this summer alone we've released close to a thousand Ozark Hellbenders back out in the wild. And that, wow. that program is amazing. Are you um, involved with that at all? Or? I used to be. I used to work down in the labs down there. Now I, I don't do a whole lot with that. Um, so I just had I just had uh, Nick Bergmeier from yeah, Indiana on. Yeah, 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 yeah. So do you know Nick? I don't know him. Um, Purdue. You guys should meet because. Uh, cool. And, and geek out about Crypto Brackets. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I don't know him. I don't really know personally any of the guys on the Indiana side of the things, with the exception of some of the guys, some of the zoos there. But when Purdue was first starting that program, they hit up St. Louis a bunch, and they continue to like consult with us because we were the ones that kind of you guys, you guys developed the protocols for yeah raising and breeding and raising captivity. Yeah, right? We, we figured it out, and we to to this day we're still the only institution that has bred them without. Uh, you know, use of hormones or artificial insemination or anything like that. We're still the only place that is getting natural reproduction out of our animals, um, and then releasing them. Back At some point, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to do another show <laughs> just on hellbenders on our Zark hellbenders. Yeah, so I, I, I I've <laughs> got a list of people you can talk to um, that might be willing to come on. The, the the staff so the 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 herpetology department at the zoo. The hellbender program is such a massive entity that they have their own staff. We work in the same building, we work in the same department, but they're essentially their own 
group of people because that that program is so huge and important and i i think thankfully oh absolutely yeah yeah and i mean that's arguably one of the most important programs we have on zoo grounds and one of the most important programs in in the united states i mean we the the staff that work down there are breeding these animals putting them back in the wild and saving the species and i i don't know if any any of them will will listen to this but a shout out to the Hellbender staff, because no matter how much attention and recognition and admiration they get, like they, it's, it is absolutely never enough. They are doing amazing things and we are so incredibly grateful for all the hard work that they do. Yeah. Yeah. And then we, we have other programs too. We, we do quite a bit of work in uh, Ecuador. We are partnered with, with some facilities down there and doing primarily amphibian work, but we're branching out into some other uh, you know, potentially snake stuff down there. I was in Ecuador in March, uh, right as the COVID bomb hit. Oh, I think I was boy. in Ecuador when you were in Peru. Yeah. And we, we got called back. I was supposed to be down there for three weeks doing field work and also just. Did you yeah. have a hard time getting back home? Uh, we compared to what I thought it was going to be. No, it, it was, it was super easy. We got to, so we were told that we were getting called back. Um, and I, switched our plane tickets to fly back to a Sunday night. I got the last flight on a Sunday that I could. And then, and and this was maybe on like a Saturday night or a Saturday afternoon. And then, then or a Friday night, Friday afternoon. And then the next day, that Saturday, the president of Ecuador gets on TV and says, we are shutting off all travel to and from Ecuador starting Monday. <laughs> so wow. I was incredibly grateful that our... You, you're, we have some parallel stories. Oh, here. yeah? Same deal, basically? Same, same deal, because yeah. they, I got out on the last plane. We did, too. We did, too. Wow. Yeah, wow. so we, we got out on... Our flight took off at 11.45 p.m. on a Sunday. Same, same deal. Same, <laughs> same deal, dude. <laughs> And we were told when we were checking in and stuff that if our pilots messed around and did not get that plane in the air before midnight, that they would have to keep it grounded and we would be stuck there. So, yeah. same deal with you guys, basically. Kind of the yeah. same deal. Our wheel, we had wheels up. at. They actually moved the flight up, I think, a half an hour. Like it got pushed back yeah. half an hour? It was I guess. supposed to be 11.45, and we actually... We were wheels up at 11.30 gotcha. at the okay, end good. of it. Um, good, good, good. And that never felt so good to see the wheels go, you know, hear the wheels come up yeah. into the plane. Normally uh, when I leave somewhere, I'm, I'm never happy, but this was the first time I was like, okay, wow. like I, the last thing I want is to be stuck down here away from my wife and my dogs whenever, you know, and yeah. at that point we didn't know what it was going to do. Like, you yeah, know, we didn't know what here. we were going to be flying back into. And, and probably stuff, so. when you went down there, it's very, probably the same thing with me. You knew there was a problem. Trouble was brewing. Yep. But yep. <laughs> some, it, so, it during didn't your seem time down there, things just went Ex- exactly. crazy. Whenever we yeah. left, it, it didn't seem like it was a big issue yet. Like it might be an issue at some point, but you know, it's this thing and there's some cases in the US. Okay. And then over the, the course of just a few nights, it turned into the entire country going on hold and freaking out and all the other countries around the world too, doing the same thing, like closing their airports and closing their borders. Yeah. So it, it got yeah. scary real quick, especially with not knowing what was going to happen. So I was, I was, yeah, it, that's yeah. the first time I've ever been happy to get out of a country. Oh, me too. Oh, yeah. Me I too. Bet, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was down, I was in Peru. Um, my, uh, my buddy and co-author Josh Holbrook, Mm-hmm. Uh, brought a tropical ecology class down 
over spring break. Hey, Canada geese. And so uh, when we went down there, it was like there was some stuff, but Peru looked pretty yeah. good. It, yeah, it, yeah. It, it had one case. Yeah. And when when we got when we went down, and by the time we got back there, the day before we left, the uh, you know the president's on it's the same thing. He's on the uh, on media saying we're we're shutting down the airlines, yeah. and I'm like, right. oh my gosh. Yep. And uh, I, I managed to. Uh, I was I was on the last flight out. I got out on my scheduled flight, but oh, that's I had no that's idea awesome. it was it was going to even work. So I bought a ticket mm-hmm. on an earlier flight, like a 10 p.m. flight. And then, of course, Josh and all of his students got out earlier in the day. Yeah. So thankfully, they all got out. And uh, so I bought a ticket on an on another flight two hours early. And it was only going to get me to Miami, and I guess I could buy a bicycle in Miami and, and pedal home. But I didn't get, care get, about that. Get a one. cheap rental, go to the Glades, look yeah. at a, a yeah. cutis, and then take your time getting home. Yeah, yeah. But, but uh, and thankfully I didn't need it. I was able to give that ticket back. Somebody That's else cool. got good. to use it because there's several yeah. thousand Americans stranded in Peru. I'm assuming when you got to the airport, there was just hundreds of oh, tourists man, trying terrible. to get out. Yeah, and, and it, that's it, it was. Um, I knew, I knew there was a point when I knew I had I was on the plane. Yeah. And there were so many people around me that weren't on a plane, and yeah. it was terrible. I felt so bad, yeah, you know. I felt for sure. bad for all these people that weren't had they were facing an unknown future, and, right? And it took about three weeks to get most of the Americans out of Peru. To My understanding, the, the same with yeah. Ecuador too. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's when we got to the airport super, super early um, to deal with that stuff, and. Uh, I uh, like just seeing the, 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 the crowds just piling in, trying to get tickets, trying to get tickets to get out. And all of them were told at the counter, all the flights are sold out. You have to go to the consulate. You have to go to the embassy. Like there's nothing we can do. And like, that's when it really kind of hit me that like, Oh, okay. Maybe the world's falling apart. Maybe (laughs) there's some stuff going down. Yeah. 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 Crazy stuff, man. And when I finally got home, for about a week, every night I would have a dream about being stranded somewhere. <laughs> Not necessarily Peru, but yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, it was just sort of a and and, and that's so an, weird, anxious time, right? And know? like like it, outside of a pandemic and like the uncertainty of the the world potentially falling apart, put yourself in that situation again where you're potentially stuck in paradise, <laughs> looking yeah, for herbs for a few yeah. weeks. You know, it sounds great. That sounds like yeah. an okay problem to have, but. Yeah. When there's like, that you, uh, much going on. I didn't on. want to leave my wife, you know, in the yeah. States by herself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that was my, like, I, I kept saying, like, if my if my wife was down there with me and if I had my dogs or whatever, like, that's that's an okay problem to have being stuck down there. But, like, just being away from everything with everything going on and not knowing how it's going to turn out, it's it was it was scary. Pretty so, sketchy. Yeah. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah. But Ecuador is cool, though. Ecuador, yeah, Ecuador is amazing. Did you go to Mindo or anywhere like that? We went to Mindo for uh, for like one night, basically. We because of everything happening, we didn't get to spend any time in the field. We spent just a few days in Quito, working with some of the facilities that we're partnered with, and like checking out what they're doing and whatnot, and you know having meetings and stuff. And then, whenever we found out that we had to to get out of there. Uh, we we ended up getting one night real quick in Mendo just because I wanted to you know get at least a little time in the field um, and see the the forest and get outside of the capital. Uh, so I, I got a, a brief taste 
of the herps of ecuador hopefully we'll get back there and yeah we, I, we I can't wait to go back yeah i i just saw my own not you know for work i want to do chaco and you know pop over to amazonia a little yeah. bit and you know yeah, get, I spent, get to the galapagos uh, of course what do we spend three uh, three or four days i can't remember now it's it's only been january yeah but we spent three or four days in mendo and you guys got and, pinocchios uh, well, we got the I'm super jealous yeah we got the pinocchio anole and the pinocchio frog i'm really jealous so, of that as well yeah. too what is that uh pristamantis yeah. appendiculatus is that what that yeah. is yeah, yeah. those are really cool appendiculatus those are really cool i'm not yeah. again i'm not jealous at all about those finds yeah. <laughs> um that was an interesting trip because uh well, I've decided that maybe herping at 1,500 meters across the world would be a good idea, cause in the <laughs> tropics at least, because it's so nice there. It's it you know I hardly broke a sweat. You know I <laughs> I like cloud forest. I like high elevation stuff. So um, I like cloud forest, hence why I, I I like Guatemala so much. And and also like and this kind of jumps into our, our third uh, conservation program, our third wild care. Uh, program in Armenia where we we've and that's the one I've been the most involved in we have been working in the country of Armenia with a variety of different species but with an emphasis on vipers so there's four different vipers that live in Armenia three of which are uh, endangered or they're they're a red list species and that's the the Soviet uh, you know most of the, the former Soviet republics that's what they refer to their endangered species as is they're they're on a red list um, that's it, the IUCN red list, right? Yeah, and that's it's they're they're kind of separate. So the IUCN oh, really? started okay. using it after, but it's actually rooted okay. from the Soviet Union. That's what they were using back in the day. Was their they had their red list of species? Oh and my like, gosh, it was, they call it a red list. Yeah, and it was literally a book that had like for each area of the Soviet Union, these are the endangered species, and a lot of these countries continue to use that as like their endangered species list. So we we've been heavily involved over there for a long time doing a variety of you know just kind of the nuts and bolts of field herpetology and conservation uh surveying different animals in different localities and trying to you know bridge gaps in localities and where some of these species live with an emphasis on the armenian viper we work with the other with derisvesky's vipers and the armenian meadow viper uh Eriwanensis and the levin vipers too but the armenian viper is kind of the flagship species for that program and we're doing mark and recapture work surveying radio telemetry and that program is one of the most important things in my life and it is it's so amazing going over there and doing that work and seeing these rare animals in in the mountains because again we're at, we're at a high elevation these things can live up to almost nine thousand feet above sea level so like even wow. in, the, in the hot in, in the heat of summer at some of the higher elevation localities we've we went down there in august one year and in the day it's you know 90 degrees in the sun but at nighttime it's windy as as, as i'll get out and it's 40 degrees and yeah so just being involved in this work in armenia it's phenomenal um and we were, we were talking about you know being at high elevations and whatnot if, if some of these populations of armenian viper they live at such a high elevation you know close to at around seven thousand feet and they can go upwards close to 9,000 feet in the heat of summer we've been down there in August when it's super hot and super dry and in the day it'll be 90 degrees but then once the sun goes down it'll drop down into the 40s and this is the hottest time of year and at night it's it's you know you're 
you're freezing your freezing your tuckus off and the wind is rolling because you're at a high elevation and you're just in these steep mountain you guys stay stay in tents so we we have a variety of different places where we're doing work um one of our field sites is right outside the capital of Yerevan and whenever we we go there it's a short enough drive that we'll normally rent a flat in Yerevan and uh just drive out there but then one of our field sites is down in the southern end of the country and it's on the border with Iran um and unfortunately that's as close to Iran as I'm going to get you know anytime soon sure uh, but that area we historically field work consisted of lugging tents in there and we would set up tents but that is a it's a biosphere preserve and there's a really high population of syrian brown bears there so we've actually we we purchased an old soviet trailer um and it's like it's it's less glamorous than what you're imagining even (laughs) It's, it's it's this tiny little trailer that has bunks uh to to sleep in and whatnot but they we we were able to get that down to this particular area where we're doing research and we stay in there well that takes the bear issue down a notch yeah for sure it takes the bear issue down a notch um i'm scared of bears by the way are you really yeah yeah i've 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 only seen wild ones a couple times i've not seen a wild one in armenia but some of our colleagues that we have working over there they've set up camera traps and they see a ton of bears on these cameras and we'll see evidence of them too we'll see scratches and you know scat and whatnot too are they one of the bigger species of bears or like for as far as like the different subspecies of brown bear i think they're like kind of in the middle i don't think they're 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 not like exceptionally large like kamchakas or something but they're they're a they're a big grizzly bear essentially that lives in they're 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 a big russian accent bear oh yeah the russian bear yeah exactly wow i really need to get over my fear of bears um i need to work on that but uh yeah. I mean, like it's <laughs> it, it of all the things to be afraid of, that's a more logical one. Like it's a they're monsters, dude. Yeah. <laughs> they are yeah. it's a giant animal with claws that are the size of steak knives and they their heads are the size of a you know, a, a, a oven like they're they're big monsters and yeah, I mean, yeah. it's it's understandable <laughs> for for sure. I'm not trembling or anything. But, yeah. <laughs> Guys, no, I, Mike I saw, is uh, in his pants. I I got to see a Malayan sun bear a few years ago in Thailand and so that, cool. that that was awesome. that was sort of a that that made it a little better. That's uh, awesome. It's like cool. okay. Uh Did you see any elephants when you were? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Were you scared of those? Um well, I'm not afraid of elephants. Okay. But last year when, when I was in Thailand, we got stuck in one of the parks at night. Okay. And uh, <clears throat> we ended up finding ourselves in the middle of a herd of elephants on the road. Jesus. And what happened was we had cut off. We had cut the herd in two accidentally trying to, to leave the mm-hmm. park. Yeah. You're not supposed to be in a park at night because elephants. Right. Um, Understand. And uh, it's a long story, but anyway... Uh, so we had about a 45 minute period where we had elephants in front of us. They're really upset. And, and the big, uh, the big females were like tearing up saplings and whacking, whacking things, you know, (laughs) making all this noise. And you hear this gunshot pops as the saplings would crack, as they would break them loose from the ground. And that is amazing. Whacking things with a, with it because part of the herd couldn't catch up and yeah. at some point we we're in you know in the van on the road and 
look in the rearview mirror and there are elephants behind us. And then oh we figure gosh. out, oh, we've cut them off. <laughs> so we did manage to back up and let them join together because mm-hmm. that, that was the whole thing. They got very nervous. Right, of course. Because because we were in the middle of them. And once we let the, the herd coalesce and move on, things but the the females were, you know, very strident. The big the big herd leaders were very strident in letting us know they were not happy. Right. And that was, you know, when you've got elephants coming down the road at you. Yeah. And actually as a second experience with elephants on the road. I also had a, a bull do the same thing back in 2016. Jeez. Uh, but uh, that that was I, I I don't I was apprehensive. I wasn't frightened, but I was apprehensive. <laughs> that's I yeah I I mean uh, like speaking of monsters like that's a monster yeah. <laughs> like those yeah. are such amazing intelligent animals and like I would love to see no. one in the wild well, at I hope, some point. I hope you do at some point. Yeah, I, I'm I'm sure I'll get over there. I I haven't done Asia proper. Yeah, and I haven't done Africa yet. I'm sure it'll happen eventually, but like I, I'd love to see him in the wild. You know, maybe not in that scenario because yeah, yeah, it was a little bit unnerving <laughs> for for sure. Uh, Absolutely. But anyway, let's go back to the vipers. A yeah, little yeah, bit. yeah. So, so you've you've how many times have you been to Armenia for this? Then? So I've done three separate trips. Each one is fairly long. So each one we're we're there, you know, a, uh, you know, two three weeks at a time. Um, and what are you, you're uh, capturing the animals, you're uh, you pit tagging them. Yeah. So it, 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 taking data on, on, on yeah, them, right. So depending basically. on where we are, we're doing a combination of mark and recapture with pit tags, radio telemetry work, and just general surveying. Um, and th- that kind of side of things and working in all these different areas and that are protected in some areas that are, aren't currently protected, but we're hoping to get them protected through this work. This is all led to the Armenian government actually expanding the boundaries of some of their national parks. The idea being like, oh, there's these, you know, endangered snakes that live here. And if we protect these snakes, what we, you know, what eats the snakes is protected, what the snakes eat is protected. And there's a variety of other really endangered species in some of these areas too. So you have a pretty good relationship with the Armenian Absolutely. government? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. We So we work with biologists that are, that are part of the Armenian government. Cool. Um, so we, and that's the only way that this program has been so incredibly successful is this collaboration between us and the you know the republic's biologists. Um, I see. And then along with the field work that we've been doing in different areas throughout the country, we have a uh, conservation. It's called the Armenian Conservation Breeding Center (ACBC), and this is a facility that we have started um, over there that is breeding different species of endangered reptile and amphibian for the eventual repatriation back into the wild. Um, This is still kind of a, you know, up and coming part of this project, right? So the last two times I was over there, we were helping to get some things set up and we took a bunch of equipment over with us, you know, to, to help, you know, get the vivariums up and running for these animals. Um, but, uh, you know, and it, there's a variety of issues with that whenever you try to take a bunch of thermostats and whatnot from, and heat tape from the United States and oh, gosh. try to plug them into, you know, Soviet era <laughs> t- <laughs> type type uh, electrical things. So we had to run around and get like a power converter at one point. It's, it's just, you know, it, it's always something. But uh, that part of the program that'll be releasing animals back out in the wild, that's a really nice tie in 
with, you know, not only the, you know, herpetoculture, you know, zoological side of things, but also this field work and these field initiatives that we have. I see. Yeah. So paint me a picture. Uh, let, let me try to guess here. I, the, the, the vipers live up on the hillsides, right? And, and you have agriculture at the lower levels where it might be flatter. Yeah. And then uh, the vipers live up on the, on the untillable rocky hills. Yeah. Is so that, the, is that so that is, um, so we have... A variety of different places that we go. There's one place in particular that is exactly what you just painted, and that that spot's not too far out of the capital of Yerevan, and that's an area that we're hoping to get protected sooner rather than later. And down at the bottom of this, it's it's basically you're you're in this big valley that has all these you know peaks and ridges and whatnot that are covered in rock, and the snakes are dinning up in these areas during the winter. Um, so they're coming and going, you know, similar to how mm -hmm. our snakes do here, right? They go to the rocks during, during the fall and they come out during the spring and then they go down to these lowland areas and they feast on the variety of rodents that are taking advantage of the agricultural zones. And one of the, uh, studies that we did, um, was actually looking at this population that is close to this agricultural activity versus a population that is so far the opposite of that that is completely wild and protected and in the middle of nowhere with you know barely any human activity whatsoever and like look at the different populations and seeing how they you know act and grow and whatnot comparatively but uh but basically the 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 overall theme is yeah it, it, you're gonna have like grassy meadows and whatnot and then these rocky peaks and you know at the top of the peaks you have just big rock piles and you know, big rocks jutting out of the earth and whatnot. And another common name for the, so Armenian vipers specifically are in the genus Montevipera. And another common name for uh, Montevipera is rock vipers. Um, and that's because these guys are so dependent upon these rock structures throughout their range, whether it be in Iran, Armenia, Turkey, they need the, these rocks to really, you know, carry out the their functions, uh, such as denning and whatnot. And the, the meadow vipers that will find contact zones of for some of these things sometimes, uh, they are dependent upon these rocks too, but typically it's different kind. It's more like talus slopes and shale piles. So when you're so. talking about meadow vipers, you're talking about uh, vipera? Yeah, so vipera. vipera, vipera so um, in... Armenia and in Vipera, and depending on which taxonomist you talk to, the Vipera has been broken up into the Vipera, which are the Amadites, and the Aspis, the the kind of hor known hor ho nose horned vipers, yeah. and then the meadow vipers are Peleus, um, but typically we still call them Vipera, and that's okay. that includes the Derzvesky's vipers, which is an incredibly endangered species that lives in northern Armenia that we work with, um, and the Eriwinensis or the Armenian meadow viper that we work with at some of the other localities. Yeah. And these, and these guys, they typically are at an even higher elevation. Armenian vipers can be found up to 9,000 feet around 3000 meters above sea level. But typically like once you start to get that high up, you're, you're not getting, you know, it, it, it's harder and harder and They're harder. Pushing the higher. Ex exactly. There. So yeah. the, the vipera, they're a little higher up in elevation. Um, but there are contact zones, for example, two, two seasons ago, we, uh, we found a Erie one in an area we, that we didn't realize that they were at. And that was really cool. It was kind of a, you know, on the lower end of their elevation 
scale and in the same habitat we were finding Armenian vipers too. So that was a really cool little record that'll be part of a bigger publication we'll be putting out about this particular area and you know potentially that'll be used to cool help us justify protecting it too i find this all interesting uh this is something before you were involved with the project is something i uh, would talk about with uh jeff at length yeah for sure absolutely <laughs> because jeff that was one of Jeff's babies. Yeah. So, so Jeff, uh, Dr. Jeff Etling is the one that started this program. And he subsequently was also, he, he's acted like a mentor to me. That man is, he's, I, I owe so much to him and he started this program and he's the one that really got me interested in old world vipers, specifically rock vipers. And his work over there has been instrumental to this project and uh even though he doesn't work at the, the my institution anymore like he's still very much heavily involved in it and, he, and he's the one that began it and yeah you, you know you know jeff uh he's he's an amazing guy yeah he's, he he's phenomenal yeah 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 and plus i had some friends of mine uh, a couple years ago went and did the montane viper tour in georgia and uh, places yeah. like that and that that also got me rekindled my interest in, in yeah one of those guys hit me up before they win i can't remember which one and i was really confused like how they were going to make it work but they ended up when they were in armenia specifically they ended up meeting up with one of the biologists that we work with over there so he took them you know oh, cool. to one of our places to make sure that you know they were to make sure you know everything was legal beagle and they weren't to make sure everything was on the up and up and also you know just some of these it's very uncommon for people to go to Armenia and Georgia and a lot of these former Soviet republics and just on their own just walk into the woods right you you have to have a guide or something otherwise you could go into the wrong place really easily and be in a world of trouble so yeah they they met up with uh, one of our guys over there i don't know what they saw in armenia i think they might have gotten a smaller ratty possibly um i don't recall but, yeah, yeah yeah but yeah no that that whole area i my favorite areas of the world as far as like herp stuff are the caribbean central america and western asia and western asia is is probably at the top of that list just i i'm i'm in love with rock vipers and just everything else that lives in that area i you know i i wish our relations with iran were better because getting into iran would be that that is my my swan song if i could at some point go to iran either for professional reasons or for you know just even as a tourist to see some of the amazing snakes that live there that's that is the the ultimate dream but i don't i don't see that happening anytime soon unfortunately but you know Ar armenia is you know my my second home at this point I, I love that country and i love the people there and i love the animals and you know there's some other countries and other former Soviet republics and whatnot that I, I, I need to get into and check out too. Cool. So maybe, maybe next year you'll, you'll go back. I don't, because of all the COVID stuff, I don't know when the next time I'll go back is, um, hopefully next year, if not next year, maybe the year after so, sooner than later, I'll, I'll get over there. I, I want to take my wife over there just like a vacation. Oh yeah. Cause my, my wife is Eastern European. So a lot of the the former Soviet republics, like they're they they remind me a lot of our states around here, right? Like so, like if you're from Illinois and you're married to someone from Minnesota and their parents are from Michigan or whatever, you know, it's just it's a little different over there. But you know, it's it, it's similar but different to where like their countries. So my wife 
is Lithuanian, Ukrainian, Russian. Oh, so wow. the, and the common denominator there is these are all former Soviet countries and they all speak Russian. And she came over to the United States when she was seven. Um, and most of her family is here now, which is which is fantastic. And uh, I'd, I'd like to take her to Armenia at some point and like just do a, a full tour of, you know, maybe start in depending on how relations are with Russia, like maybe start in Sochi and drive down along the Black Sea, do Georgia and then pop down into Armenia and then fly home from there because that sounds fantastic yeah and she she even though all of these different countries they speak like armenia the the language in armenia is armenian right but because there's there's been so much of an influence from russia most people speak russian there so i I mean she would be able to help communicate i speak enough russian to to get by but i i look and sound like a moron (laughs) (laughs) Um, if you can ask where the bathroom is yeah i can i can ask where the bathroom is i can ask where snakes are i can say please you know please don't arrest me we're looking for snakes stuff like that (laughs) you know but our while we're in armenia doing field work we have armenians with us that kind of you know they're they're right. the big dogs in the armenian government so they've sure got all the permits you're not, and, you're not running around the countryside ex- by yourself exactly you know. exactly <clears throat> right yeah and, and it wouldn't be any other way for sure oh yeah given, you're, you're given the you're, program yeah, yeah you're not you're yeah exactly yeah that's it's it's difficult to it's not like costa rica where you can fly into Costa Rica, get in a rental car and drive around to the national parks and see herbs. Like a lot of these countries, the only way you're going to see stuff really is if you are with a local and that's for, you know, the best anyway, because that way you're, the animals are, you know, not being taken advantage of because, you know, there's some of these species of viper that live in Armenia, for example, the European hobbyists are dying to get their hands on to keep in terrariums. So, I mean, the fact that it is so difficult to see these things without, you know, guides and park rangers and whatnot, it keeps the animals protected. So Good. Yeah. Good. There's a layer of insulation there. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I haven't even got to Guatemala yet, and we've already broken the, the hour mark. Oh, geez. So, Seriously? Yeah. So, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to make this a two-parter. Okay. And uh, I think I think we're we'll going to go ahead and close this down as a standalone episode. And uh, then we'll t- we'll talk, uh, pause and uh, take a break, and then we'll uh, record a second episode. So that you'll sounds... be my first two parts. Oh, geez. Okay. That's a lot of pressure on me, but sounds so, great. So to end this episode, let me just say thanks for coming here to this beautiful park. And uh, and I hope some of these birds are picking up on, on the microphone because we've had <laughs> some really cool stuff, including a, a nice uh, eastern wood peewee, which showed up for a while. So I hope they show up on the mic at least. So. Uh, again, thanks for for coming out and no, talking th- to me. Thank you. I cannot express my gratitude for for asking me to do this. It means the world. So thank Back you so much. Back at you, buddy. Yeah. All right. That's it for episode fourteen. I want to thank my guest Justin Eldon not only for coming on the show but for talking my arm off for several hours. I kid, of course, but I really enjoyed our conversation, Justin. It was just so much fun. And folks, please see the show notes for some links to the projects Justin is involved with as part of his duties at the St. Louis Zoo. And as always, I want to say thank you for the comments and for the emails, which I really appreciate, and the funny memes. I love those. And of course, thanks for listening and thanks for supporting the show. And stay tuned for yet another conversation with Justin Eldon 
It's a two for today, and you kids deserve it. Just a couple more things before I go. You can find all of the recorded episodes and show notes at SoMuchPingle.com. And you can join this So Much Pingle Facebook group. That's right. You can also email me directly at SoMuchPingle at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. And in the meantime, folks, please take good care of yourselves and don't forget to hurt better. <laughs> <laughs>